This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. August 10th, 2023, the abortion rights win at the polls edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm in Vermont. I'm away from D.C. at the moment. Uh, and other things are different, too. I am joined, of course, by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine in Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. That is not different. Hey, David. John Dickerson is on vacation, but no matter, no matter, because we are joined by one of our favorite guest hosts, Juliet Kayam. Juliet is a Harvard Kennedy School scholar. She's a CNN national security analyst. She's a contributing writer at The Atlantic, and she's the author of The Devil Never Sleeps, which we'll be talking about later in the show. And she joins us from somewhere in New England. Rhode Island. I don't know if Rhode Island is considered New England, but hello. Definitely is. Okay, sorry. I was was raised on the West Coast. (laughs) I don't know these things. This week on the GabFest, how big a deal is the defeat of issue one in Ohio? Then, would a Trump trial be disastrous for the nation? Then, weather catastrophes everywhere you turn. Juliet will give us wisdom about how to prepare for inevitable climate chaos and and adapt to it. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. By a large majority, Ohio voters rejected issue one. It's going to require a little bit of a Byzantine explanation uh, if you haven't followed the story. But basically... Ohio pro-choice citizens are pushing a ballot initiative to enshrine abortion rights into the Ohio Constitution. That initiative will be up for a vote in November. And like all voter initiatives in Ohio and in most states, it would require 50% to pass. Republican legislators and pro-life groups fearing they would lose that vote if it's a 50% threshold, and also fearing that other left-leaning voter initiatives around, say, the minimum wage might also come soon, put a different voter initiative onto the ballot. They rushed it onto the August ballot that would have changed the threshold for passage of voter initiatives in Ohio to 60%, making it very difficult for a a state as divided as Ohio to pass anything by voter initiative. So on Tuesday night, Ohioans voted on that procedural shift in in the the threshold, the 60% threshold, and they said, no way. So Emily, is this a victory for abortion rights or just a rebuke to political gamesmanship, or is it both? Both. When uh, Ohio Republicans put issue one, the 60% threshold measure on the ballot, they said it had nothing to do with abortion rights. They said they were trying to protect the Ohio Constitution from being changed by outside billionaires and special interests. But then in June, the Secretary of State in in Ohio, Frank LaRose, who's a Republican who's going to be running for Senate, he said at an event, this is 100% about abortion. And that statement was used by the pro-choice side in their advertisements against the measure over and over again. And they were saying to the voters of Ohio, look, like they're trying to have minority rule here and they're doing it for this specific reason because we have this abortion rights initiative coming up in November. So that ended up being a really, you know, the key part of the campaign. And I think that was a real shift over the months as voters became more aware of what was going on. I was in Ohio in June um, reporting on people who are going door knocking about the abortion rights measure and also about um, issue one. 
And at that point, it seemed like a lot of people in Ohio, understandably, didn't really know what issue one was or what the stakes were. So I think voters became much more aware over time um, about what was really going on. Juliet, Ohio is a red state increasingly. Why would it be that Republicans are so certain they're going to lose an abortion voter initiative in November? Because they, I mean, basically, because they've lost a lot of abortion initiatives since the Dobbs case. I mean, this is just the growing realization uh, by the Republicans, which was absolutely predictable, uh, that Dobbs uh, and its sweeping uh, language was not desirable by lots of people, not just Democrats, but independents and even Republicans, uh, as we're seeing in the exit polling in Ohio. Uh, so once this issue won, this is the the majority, you know, how do you change the constitution issue became tied to the abortion issue. It was a, uh, it was a, um, a, a campaign that, that linked democracy with, with, uh, reproductive rights. And I, I, you know, and, and this, it also exposed the lie in Dobbs, but it also in the pro-life movement over the course of our lives, certainly over the course of the last couple decades, which people could challenge Roe for its reasoning uh, and basically say, you know, it, it disrupted what was going on in the states and we should let states decide when it was clear that the pro-life movement uh, didn't really care about democracy or federalism. It, it, yeah, and we're seeing this in, in the dynamics on the federal level, too, with them trying to uh, uh, pass a uh, Dobbs, uh, federal Dobbs statute that would prohibit uh, abortions and then also, you know, uh, penalize interstate travel. This is what you're seeing is because they lost the substantive issue, Republicans are then going after uh, uh, the election issue, which is consistent with what they're doing across the board, unrelated to abortion in a number of these cases with ger- gerrymandering and voting rights and access to the ballot and everything you're seeing in Florida and Texas and elsewhere. One of the things that I get a little bit hung up on is I don't think direct democracy is a really great thing for states in general. I don't think it's it's good to have a lot of voter initiatives Uh, making law across a wide swath of things. On the other hand, the reason why it has emerged right now on the left is just that state legislatures have become so overwhelmingly Republican, disproportionately overwhelmingly Republican because of excellent gerrymandering and better organizing. Republican legislators in a lot of states have way more control than they should, given the the sort of actual voting uh, interests of the population around them. So for example, and they, the, the Ohio legislature is 70% Republican, even though Ohio is maybe like a 54% Republican state, uh, but the way the state has been gerrymandered. And so voter initiatives are sort of a way to resist that. But, but Emily, like is doing things by voter initiative, including protecting reproductive rights, the way we want to go as a country? So that's a great question. Ballot initiatives that are led by citizens, where like you have a drive and you collect petitions, and that's how you get on the ballot. They're a reform from the beginning of the 20th century, the progressive era. And the idea was to make the government more responsible directly to the will of the people. It turns out that in all those decades since then, pretty consistently, people have rejected about six in 10 ballot initiatives. So there's a kind of reluctance to make change, or at least to kind of trust this single issue vehicle for making change. 
But starting in the 1970s in California with this famous initiative that I bet Juliet remembers since she's a Californian, Prop 13, that was this anti-tax revolt where the voters said, hell no to raising property taxes again, and they really messed with the state budget. And what activists found in that moment is there's a kind of sweet spot for ballot initiatives. It's when there's a particular issue that's popular with the electorate, but not popular with the party in power. The party in power either doesn't want to touch it at all or just doesn't find it a priority. And so on the right, you've seen conservatives use the ballot initiative since then to do things like ban affirmative action and pass more anti-tax measures, sometimes anti-immigrant measures. And then on the left, you see progressives use it recently to expand Medicaid, to legalize marijuana, Um And now you're seeing these abortion rights measures, which, by the way, after Dobbs, the first wave of measures was pro-life folks in Kansas and Kentucky and Montana trying to enact restrictions that the voters voted down. Then you had Michigan in November, and now you have Ohio, where the voters are being asked to say yes to protecting abortion. And I don't really have a theory of like what is proper for direct democracy and what is not. Um, I don't know, David, maybe you have. I guess the other just like fact I'll throw in is that there are only 23 states where you can do this at all, where citizens can get a petition onto the ballot. Um, And so I guess that in itself shows that in parts of the country, there's a real hesitation and reluctance to go about this. But tell me like why you think the ballot initiatives are bad at, or whether you think they should only be reserved for certain things and which things. The plots theory, the plot theory is only that, that uh, you elect legislators to be your proxies. Like this, the point of being in a Republic is that these are people who are kind of well-versed in the issues and can theoretically engage in thoughtful debates and gather knowledge that's required to become expert and to make wise decisions about um, what, legislation should be, whereas the people are in general swung, they're swung more easily by uh, by emotion, by things that are temporal and not that, that aren't deeply thought out. That's the theory. That's the kind of like going back to, to the Republican Senate theory. Of course, in reality, our legislators are dumb and crass and pocketed by uh, special interests uh, in ways that are appalling and heavily gerrymandered. So they're not even, they're not even representing us. I think my ideal is that the Republic works, but in reality, the Republic does not work. And so I guess you go to direct democracy because the Republic is, is an inefficient system. Now the Ohio voters were pretty sophisticated in this regard. I, I was sort of impressed. It's, it wasn't obvious, you know, Emily was there. So, uh, and, and said, you know, most people weren't paying attention, but it, it, it does show that, uh, that people can figure out how the political machinations could be working against them in the future and want to stop it early. Uh, in this regard, I think, you know, issue one is interesting because it's a, it's essentially a process, issue, right? I mean, it's just a 60% to change the constitution or 50%. So there's something about one person, one vote that's appealing uh, those who wanted to vote 
option one down, the winners in this case, you know, we're sort of pushing that. It's, it's, it's conceptually an easy thing to understand. As you were saying, David, I mean, there is a, a I think, a, a sentiment that tinkering with the architecture of our constitution uh, can come back to, to bite you. And I think that's what Ohio Republicans um, are facing, that, that the systems of, you know, what we call the legal architecture of how we actually engage with our government um, uh, shouldn't be messed with, especially when there's a nefarious reason for it in the background. One point I want to make is, is people are very focused on loss aversion. So people don't like things being changed on them. So I imagine if the threshold in Ohio had been 60 and pro-choice voters wanted to switch it to 50, it also would have gotten voted down. Like people have a sense like that the way things are now, what I have now is what is working. And so change it at your own risk. And they don't like that sense of loss. I think our president, you know, President Biden is like that with the packing of the court or, you know, of the Supreme Court. I just think that for all of its tremendous deficiencies, uh, uh, I think behind his desire not to pick up on the progressive movement to add more bodies to the court or put term limits or none of this will pass, but even to get behind it uh, from the bully pulpit is, is related to that, that, that sense that you can be progressive and conservative simultaneously. I mean, I think one way to think about this is like, you have to be really ruthless and committed to want to change the rules of the game. If you're just like a normal observer, you're like, wait, that's cheating. You don't just get to turn over the table and demand a 60% threshold. And so when political insiders have the power to make these changes, like if a legislature can make it harder to pass a ballot initiative, they go ahead. But if they have to put it to the voters then it tends not to work. There's only one state, Florida, that has this uh, greater than a simple majority threshold. But there are many states in which legislatures have tried to make it harder to collect signatures, like up to the number or the number of counties they've had to come from or just done other things to raise the bar to actually getting the initiative onto the ballot in the first place. I think Arizona also voted to raise the threshold for tax initiatives to 60%. So if you want to yes, you're right. initiative Just to tax increase related. taxes yes, at, good point. in Arizona at 60%. Um, final question here, looking forward to the general election. One, one point that some observers are making is that while this in general, while the activism around reproductive rights in general seems to be benefiting Democrats and benefiting the left at the, at the ballot, there are reasons to think this may not matter so much in the general election. Emily, what did you make of the, the the kind of theorizing that when people are voting specifically on abortion rights, they will vote to protect abortion rights, but they're not going to vote when the general election is up. They're not going to vote a uh, straight ticket for abortion rights supporting candidates over other issues. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things going on here. So one is like back to this question of, you know, what should elected officials do versus direct democracy. Elected officials, when they, candidates, when they run for office, of course, they're like a bundle of views, right? I mean, abortion is just one among many of the issues they address. And we have this very polarized system now where, you know, almost every Republican is pro-life and just about every Democrat is pro-choice. And then they line up on a bunch of other axes and you don't get to just pick out one thing you want. 
And that would be the um, argument in favor of what you just said, that, you know, people are still going to back Republican candidates if they have other conservative views and they'll kind of set their disagreement about abortion to the side. On the other hand, there's been this interesting phenomenon so far in Michigan in November 2022, where Republican pollsters I talked to really credited their abortion rights ballot measure with lifting Democratic candidates and changing control of the state houses in Michigan and helping Gretchen Whitmer, although she won by a lot. So it probably wasn't the determinative factor. She's the Democratic governor in Michigan. And what they were saying was that it boosted turnout among voters who are likely to vote for Democrats. And so in 2024, there may be ballot initiatives on in, that go up about abortion in states like Florida and Arizona, Missouri, possibly one of the Dakotas. People are working on initiatives in those places. And in 24, that could threaten Republican candidates in those states. We'll have to see. Do you want to hear more from us after this episode? If so, stick around for our bonus segment. Today, we're going to be talking about that wild, pretty depressing Montgomery boat brawl. That segment is just for Slate Plus members. So if you are a Slate Plus member, thank you. Because of your support, we've been able to keep the GapFest chugging along for so many years. If you are not a Slate Plus member, we would love it if you sign up. You get bonus segments every episode of the GapFest, as well as on many other Slate podcasts. You get special discounts on live shows. No hitting the paywall on the Slate site, much more as well. So if you're a member, thank you. If you're not a member, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. That's slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Jack Goldsmith has an op-ed in the New York Times this week arguing that Trump's prosecution could be catastrophic for the nation because it would erode trust in the Justice Department and set off a wave of politically motivated prosecutions uh, in the future. So, Juliet, who is Jack Goldsmith? Why should we listen to him? <laughs> uh, Jack Goldsmith is a professor at Harvard Law School, uh, but famously uh, was the head of the Office of Legal Counsel uh, during uh, the, the height of the war on terrorism in the Bush administration. He eventually wrote a book called The Terror President about his experience uh, in that, and it was viewed as a cautionary voice um, on executive powers uh, uh, as related to the war on terror. Uh, and he's just a, you know, he's a very well-respected uh, conservative thinker, uh, not, not, not pro Donald Trump and often writes things that, um, uh, that um, are that as, as the most recent piece he wrote that we'll be discussing about the indictments against Donald Trump for January 6th, you know, tries to sort of uh, steer a line that is neither, you know, supportive of the indictment nor pro-Trump. And that's what he, he does in this piece by saying that the indictment relating to January 6th, uh, and the insurrection, um, is even assuming that it's legally strong, which he questions, uh, that it is a bad indictment at the wrong time. Uh, and that arguably the Mar-a-Lago classified information indictments, uh, are stronger. They don't touch on the rail of democracy and that, uh, and that the Justice Department, whatever the verdict is, uh, the Justice Department will be viewed as political for having waited so long and it being so close to essentially when the GOP is going to pick their nominee. Emily, what did you find persuasive and unpersuasive in what Goldsmith said? Well, unpersuasive 
Jack says that he thinks it would be a total disaster if Trump is not convicted. And I don't really think that. I I mean, I just, I don't know. Maybe I just haven't focused on that yet. But I feel like that is too high a bar, that he has to be convicted for this to have been a good idea. What I did think was important and interesting are these points that he's making about perceived unfairness. And he's mostly talking, I think, about conservatives and Republicans here, but he talks about the perceived unfairness in, you know, the um, Mueller investigation. Like, did Trump really have connections to Russia in 2016? Should the FBI have been poking around in there? Um, the, you know, origins of the Steele dossier is coming, you know, having some connection um, to the DNC and to the Hillary Clinton campaign. And then he talks also about perceived unfairness in um, how Hunter Biden has been treated and these whistleblowers who've come forward. Um, and I think what's important here is like, whatever you think of the merits of these arguments, a lot of people have these beliefs. And obviously, that's like a Trumpian point to make, right? Many people say, many people think. But it is true that if you have this backdrop of swirling around of, you know, preferential treatment of the Justice Department, um, picking and choosing its uh, targets, that that is going to affect how you see these indictments. It just colors your whole perception. I'm not really sure what to do about that. I mean, I'm sort of inclined to think of this prosecution right now as like necessary and maybe still like <sighs> having big problems. Like, I'm not sure that it's going to we're going to look back and be think that this was good for the country. But I'm I'm kind of in the David French camp. Um, he was joined us last week to talk about why he thinks like the Justice Department kind of didn't have a choice. I mean, I thought, can I just add, because I didn't give my commentary of Jack's piece. I mean, he's he's absolutely right that all of this could have ended in the second impeachment vote. I mean, if McConnell had uh, easily gotten uh, a, a couple more votes, uh, this this madness of the last two years uh, would have been easier. I would, would not have occurred. I mean, you would have had a very different narrative coming out of January uh, 2021 uh, uh, than when McConnell folded essentially a couple days after he condemned Trump. And now we're here where we are. As a legal matter, uh, I think we can't know what the consequences will be. I mean, I just think it's unknowable. The alternative is 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 what that you that you don't do this. Um, the allegations are are pretty serious. There's been more reporting since the indictment about how serious uh, his people were about usurping the votes of millions of Americans uh, and how serious he was. It was no joke about staying in power. The way I look at it is not legally, though. I mean, my work is on counterterrorism and insurgencies. And as a, as a counterinsurgency effort, this is absolutely necessary. At every place where this stuff rears its head, whether it is the people who attacked on January 6th, who should have known better, but got swept into the deplatforming on social media to the, the, the off, off ramping, which I think the January 6th committee uh, allowed Republicans to do. So you look at Judge Ludic, or even now Bill Barr in his sort of, you know, latter day come to Jesus about Trump, uh, but also in these, uh, uh, these cases, um, that, that this thing, uh, uh, needs to be, 
the, the price of engaging in what Trump did has to be made high for everyone uh, who uh, contributed to it, uh, whether you were a fake elector or you were there on January 6th, and anyone who's thinking of contributing to it. So I, I, I totally get what Jack is saying in the legal and political sphere. In the violence insurrection and insurrection sphere, uh, this is absolutely the right, right course. I think you guys are absolutely right. I mean, the Prosecution could be a catastrophe. Not prosecuting is also clearly a catastrophe. And yes, it is true that a swift and merciless second impeachment and conviction would have was the right thing. It was undone by cowardly Republicans in the Senate. The political branch doesn't work. So it is up to the other branches to try and carry out some form of justice as the as the executive and judicial branch have been doing around the January 6th. Uh, the January 6th insurrectionists. And it's also, I think the one, the, the piece of the article, the piece of the piece that I found least persuasive was this idea, well, if if he's prosecuted and, and convicted or even not convicted, it's going to unleash a, a, a wave of political prosecutions, that now there are going to be political prosecutions left and right. Are You have to be kind of wishfully deluding yourself to think that Trump isn't going to deploy the Justice Department in terrifying ways if he's reelected, whether or not he was prosecuted in this case or not. Like, it is clear, like, that this is part of what he is planning, and he was planning it before any of these indictments came down. And to think that that this prosecution is the one that's going to, oh, now it gives him cover to go out and prosecute other people, it seems seems really quite... um, quite off base, off the mark. I mean, it's not going to be roses and caviar. If only Jack Smith hadn't shown up, it would all be roses and caviar. It's not that way. It was going to be bad if it will be bad if Trump is elected. So um, that part didn't persuade me. Yeah. I mean, the part of this that makes me the most nervous is just the related to the points Juliet was making about how (laughs) you want politics to resolve this, right? Like, and yet because Trump is likely to be the Republican nominee running for president to have this legal sword hanging over his head while he is the main, you know, politician on the Republican side, it just is a really confusing, volatile mix of politics and law. Like there's just no way to get around that, but it's absolutely true that it's the original failing of, you know, Republicans in Congress in that moment, right after January 6th that got us here. Julia, just to close us out here, I know that you've been struck by the, the fairly dismal time that Mitch McConnell and Mike Pence are having these days, that the Republican party is actively rejecting their most effective arguably their most effective leader of any sort in the last hundred years and they're rejecting their very conservative vice president because he once they once in a while chose country over Trump. Why are you, why were you struck by this? Because it was so predictable. I mean, this is, this is where, you know, the catering to Trump and what he did on January 6th, you know, how it unfolded was so obvious, right? So there were literally two roads for the Republican Party to take in January of 2021. So forget Ukraine, right? Because we already had that come and go, that impe- uh, impeachment process. This was about are we going to have to deal with this person? Is he, like what you were saying, David, like, can he be placated? No, right? or now or later, right? And they chose later. Well, later we know what happens. 
his strength is different, but, but no one can get as much strength as him. And that that element, he would turn that element against the very people who are, are trying to now find, uh, the second lane. And that is Pence, who's, you know, now sort of, you know, being a little bit more forceful about what happened in January 2021. And then, of course, McConnell, who has never questioned Biden's win. Uh, and so they're getting heckled and silenced and all the things that happened to a party that two years ago uh, could have made this choice and now seems to be trying to make it and it's too late. It is just, it's too late. He will be, I don't see any path where he's not the nominee. I just don't see it. Juliet, you are a former assistant secretary, I think, in Homeland Security. And and one of the things you focused on when you were there and have focused on since is preparedness. You are the person, therefore, that I would like to talk to about what is going on in the world. We we don't want to talk to you really about climate science or I don't even think we should talk to you about the large scale policy shifts that the world may need to to protect itself. But we're living in this world of immense climate danger, as we see in the terrible weather around the nation and around the world this summer. Hawaii is on fire uh, with scores of deaths uh, on Maui. Smoke from forest fires poisoning lungs, record heat waves and misery across the south, catastrophic flooding in Alaska and right where I am here in Vermont, uh, droughts, scorchingly hot ocean temperatures. We have to live in this world that is rapidly changing. So how do we manage it day to day? And so I'm going to, I'm going to set you up with a, with a set of questions. It's four questions all in once. Emily, you can interrupt if you want. The four questions are, think of yourself as being a leader at four different levels, president of the United States, governor of a state, mayor of a city, and just head of your household. What are the things that each of those people should be focusing on to help us get through this next century. It's as if I wrote a book about this, uh, and we and how you how you describe it is exactly right. I mean, it's it's recurring disasters. Uh, polycrisis is the word that Davos the Davos people use. Perma crisis, permanent crisis. But it is it is the the cumulative effects of all of these things. Because think each time something happens, your the floor of preparedness gets lower. So think about Vermont had flooding last month, and and the soil so saturated now has additional flooding or or what we're seeing in Hawaii is is fire, but it's fire that's related to a hurricane, uh, which you don't think of those two things together, but it's because of the the winds with Hurricane Dora that we saw the sweeping fires throughout Maui. Okay, so I very quick answer. So a head of household, the number one thing is family unification. I want to be clear here. I am focusing on the moment the bad thing happens. As you said, David, there are big, you know, structural things that, that we have to work Worry about like mitigating climate change, but head of household. What is true in every disaster? Are the, is the question: Where are my kids? Uh, where is my? Where are my parents? Where is my dog? Whatever it is you want to c- consider your family. Do you know? Do you have a plan uh, in terms of uh, just presence? And it will differ. I can't be specific, but it will differ depending on age and where you live and things like that. Uh, for a mayor, it's going to be uh, uh, what we would call situational awareness, which is if, if you're a mayor, you need to know what's happening in real time uh, to be able to deploy resources or have your team deploy resources. Twitter used to be good for this. I've written a lot about 
Twitter's disaster and disasters now, um, uh, but it is, are you hearing things that let you deploy resources? I'll, the, you know, the famous story of why the mayor of San Francisco, London Breed, closed down earlier as a city than any other is because her Chinese-American population, the largest in the United States, was telling her this is a respiratory disease. Right. She knew before the White House was willing to admit it. She knew because they were, you know, the Chinese American population there was talking to their families in China. Um, as a governor, and I spent a lot of time with governors, it is going to be, can you assist the locality during the crisis uh, and declare emergencies fast enough so that resources from around the state and other states can be deployed. That's going to get harder as these we have these multi-state disasters. Um, think about fires and stuff like that. But that's generally their role and sort of communication. And then the president, I mean, I'm I'm a I am done uh, with paying people uh, to get back to normal. We need massive changes to the way we think about disaster relief. We are, we are distributing gazillions of dollars. Uh, Democrats are bad about this issue, as are Republicans. It's not just hypocritical Republicans. Um, it is also Democrats. We need to start to uh, drive disaster relief uh, to get people to build safer, uh, to build a way, to build higher, to build more durable, to fire all of those things. And my last point is for everyone who complains about insurance companies getting out of California and Florida, all this news that we're seeing in the last couple of weeks, you know, they're just filling a public policy gap, right? I mean, no one's doing anything. And so they're sort of saying, well, in the absence of, of anyone doing anything, uh, we view these areas as simply too risky. So you asked, I answered, but it took me a while. Sorry. So on the one hand, you could argue that like, okay, now we've entered this era of rebuilding. Everything's going to burn or flood and we're going to keep putting it back together. And hey, that's economic activity. On the other hand, it seems incredibly wasteful and um, stubborn. And isn't it in the end, the inability to ensure the places in which there is such a great likelihood of another disaster coming isn't that reluctance to ensure going to be the thing that actually changes people's behavior since it's really unlikely that we're not going to have FEMA anymore and emergency relief from the government? I think that's, I mean, I'll just, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think the insurance companies are, where everyone says, oh, they're the canary in the coal mine and we're sort of focused on them. And it's like, well, let's look at the coal mine. I mean, it's the coal mine that's the problem that we're just, you know, the insurance companies are just relating uh, a, a way that we've built that is just not sustainable. What are the other effective market forces that cause better behavior? So insurance, possibly insurance is one of them. Are there others that are you can think of? Everyone's to blame. So uh, for and California is so interesting. I'm working on a piece on California. Here it is, a absolutely blue state, barely a Republican Party left. You know, on the forefront of climate mitigation and the green economy. Uh, no one doubts what's happening to the world, and it can't figure this out because it doesn't want to price the very thing. Uh, that they know is happening. And so you can blame state legislatures, which in California deprived insurance companies from using present fire modeling to make predictions about 
risk and therefore pricing in the future. It's it's like anti-science. You can blame local uh, governments that are zoning dangerously. I mean, so you can use zoning laws, you can use tax incentives and tax penalties, you can use building requirements and building permits. Look, there's ways that buildings and therefore people can survive fire. Uh, we know how to do it. Um, uh, so there's all sorts of ways that everyone has failed to rise to the occasion. And the insurance companies were sort of the first to, uh, to, to say, we can no longer monetize this risk given what's going on. And we're going to, you know, sort of cut the cord right now. They'll come back. They want, they want the business. A lot of, some of this is, is playing around with politics, but uh, it's, I think it's an important sign and one that we ignore or, you know, condemn because we hate insurance companies at our peril. One of the things I've been struck by whenever I'm in a beachfront community is how much beachfront communities spend to protect their beachfront property. They're extremely endangered beachfront property. Their beachfront property that if, you know, the ocean rises in the way that we expect will definitely be gone. Like if you think of places like in the Outer Banks and, and, um, uh, uh, parts of Florida, and there's this massive amount of money to restore beaches to, you know, go get sand and throw it on the beach again, and and it just seems really pointless, like an enormous waste of resources. This would be money that would be so much better spent in other ways. But these are the richest people in the community, and therefore the most powerful interest group. How do we not prioritize in this bad way, where you're doing this in this like quick mitigation that that helps? Uh, that helps very rich people, um, but doesn't address the long term. I am for quick mitigation. I mean, in other words, it will save lives. So some of it is that you have to deploy these resources simply because you're not going to be able to move large groups of people in these homes with their powerful um, interests. What you need to in the same way that I think President Biden has been successful in linking the green economy with jobs, so he doesn't talk about climate change, um, we are we are going to have to uh, link economic penalties to building in in ways that a lot of these people um, are are building, and that would be in you know in, in increased taxes, inability to get mortgages. I mean, you know, banks are next. Ba- you know, banks are looking at what insurance insurers are doing and saying, "I'm not sure I want to give a mortgage to these places." Uh, and so, it's going to be a long term transition, uh, but I think it's it's going to going to occur. Uh, and um, and our public policy apparatus could get ahead of it, or it could just follow where the insurers and then ultimately the mortgage banks um, are going to go. This will start to happen on the mortgages. You just can't, it's stupid for banks to give loans for some of these places. Can I ask one more question? Are we going to see just an increasing share of the economy go toward All of this, I mean, it sort of reminds me of how the population is aging. And so then you spend more and more of your share of resources on medical care. And I'm just not sure what, how to think about this. Well, yes. I mean, COVID was one, COVID was the first 50 state disaster. It was the first time all states uh, had activated their emergency operations center. So it's just a des, it's just a legal designation in terms of, of emergencies. And what that meant is the entire disaster management 
framework and system, which relies on what we call mutual aid. In other words, if California's on fire, Massachusetts can send a bunch of firefighters over, uh, could not hold. So we're, we're seeing, t- uh, stresses in the mutual aid, uh, capacity because states simply can't help other states and, uh, and countries simply can't help themselves. So if you look at Canada's wildfires, they're bringing firefighters from South Africa and Australia because the United States said we, we, we simply can't send anymore because we need to keep some people uh, here. So we are stretching those capacities. That's why you hear a lot about um, uh, not whole of government response, but whole of community response. You know, think of private sector and community groups and others that are uh, uh, trying to find ways to protect themselves during these harms. Uh, it's not going to be enough. And we will have what we call, you know, unnecessary losses or what the Haitians call stupid deaths. These are deaths that did not need to occur, but because we the resources did not deli- get delivered, people die, say, after the hurricane or after the fire. Um, and, uh, and we will see an increase of those. So we are you know, we have been stretched. Uh, we still have ingenuity and capacity, but, uh, uh, but it's hard. I mean, and it's going to get harder. At some point, when you get disaster piled on disaster piled on disaster, the government just stops being able to, um, to act to effectively help people. How far away are we from that? And are there examples where we have already, where that's already happened? There's a joke in Puerto Rico. I was just in Puerto Rico, and this is this is the dark humor of the world I live in. Um, that says uh, Puerto Rico's economic development plan is hurricanes, right? I mean, in other words, it gets wiped out, and then lots of money comes. Um, but what you want to do, what we need to do, is tie that money to better behavior um, in terms of what construction materials are used, uh, what zoning laws are authorized and authorize what kind of buildings. Um, and then, of course, things like infrastructure and evacuation plans. If you look at, I don't know how the people died in Maui. I, this, you know, I, I, I study deaths after the fact to sort of figure out how they die. You know, if, but if you look at Paradise, Florida, you know, 87% of the people who died in that, in that wildfire died on, uh, on infrastructure, not in their homes. They died on a road that could not sustain an evacuation. So we know how to do this. We just are unwilling to tie those resources uh, to conditioned behavior. We will start to, though, in the same way we did with the airline industry um, and uh, and smoking and others. We're just we're going to simply have to make the cost of not preparing uh, very high. Let's go to cocktail chatter. That was really depressing. That was so depressing that you would definitely be having an extremely, extremely. I I ended with we know what to do and we have the capacity to do it. Okay, (laughs) then you've you've done a great job. You've just done a great job rescuing people, and you're kicking back now on your porch. You've rescued seventeen people. You didn't even need to rescue them because the infrastructure was built, so you didn't even have to go out and rescue them. So you've, in fact, you've been drinking all day. You've been sitting there drinking all day on your porch, Emily. What are you chattering about? I am really struck this week by a story out of Florida. Um, Ron DeSantis suspended the state prosecutor in Orlando. He said that she was incompetent and neglecting her duty. Really, he just doesn't like the way she's exercising prosecutorial discretion. She was elected as a progressive. Um, She's putting fewer people in prison. He's singling out a few cases that he thinks she mishandled involving violence, but 
you know, she was elected by the people of Orlando. Doesn't seem like they um, have a problem with how she's handling her job. And this is the way that, you know, an important way that voters can address mass incarceration and, uh, you know, racial disparity and other injustice um, in the legal system. And Florida has this particular law that gives the governor power um, in some cases to um, discipline prosecutors or take cases away from them. But, you know, DeSantis is on, I think, some pretty potentially thin legal ice here. And there's a really interesting Twitter thread by Carissa Byrne Hessek, who's a professor at UNC, about why DeSantis might be on thin legal ice and suspending this particular prosecutor, Monique Worrell. And there have been a couple of other prosecutors who've been... um, had take cases taken away from them, or Andrew Warren in Miami was also exited from his job by DeSantis um, earlier. And what Carissa was saying was like, this case is different and trickier for DeSantis because Monique Worrell, the prosecutor in Orlando, had not ruled out um, prosecuting a whole category of cases. She was just like individually exercising her discretion in individual cases, which is her job. And so arguably, even with this, you know, quite extreme Florida law that gives the governor so much um, power here, DeSantis may not actually get away with this one. We'll see. Juliet, what is your chatter? I'm thinking about uh, our elders, uh, and so we'll spend this minute just celebrating and reflecting on uh, the life and then uh, the the death this week of Charles Ogletree, who will be very familiar to a lot of your listeners, a Harvard uh, law professor, but who entered the national stage, well known before that, but entered the national stage as the uh, as the uh, attorney for Anita Hill during the Anita Hill Clarence Thomas uh, hearings. Ogletree passed away. He had been suffering from early dementia for many years, uh, but uh, really was the leader of uh, that generation of uh, Black law professors, law students who became law professors after uh, Brown versus Board of Education. Our understanding of law has changed because of that generation. but also that generation can seem a little less than progressive. I think they had uh, they had tremendous faith in law and institutions as Ogletree did uh, and in truth-telling as a way to uh, uh, change things. I think things may not be uh, as uh, clear today, but I think uh, at a time when uh, everything can seem so negative and anti-democratic, spending a moment reflecting that our elders have been through much worse uh, and grew up in segregated schools and still believed in American democracy and uh, its ability to correct itself. My chatter, first a quick log rolling chatter, which is that CityCast DC, uh, our wonderful local daily podcast and newsletter, Hey DC, are celebrating their first anniversary this month. And we're going to do a live event on August 28th at Sunny's Pizza in Parkview. We're going to have an anniversary party, and then we're going to have a live podcast t- tasting. Starts at 5 uh, with a wine tasting, and then there's a taping at 6.30. And it's going to be great. I'm going to be there. It's going to be really fun. So if you think you can join us for this live show on August 28th, uh, please, you can just email me at davidplotz at gmail.com. I can send you the link, but you can also look in the show notes and there's a link there to get tickets. 
But my real chatter is about an, a wild story in the Washington Post this week. Actually, I said that with perhaps too much excitement in my voice. It's about a series of murders or deaths in Australia. There is there's like a real life murder mystery story playing out in in Australia, a palatial country home in Victoria in late July, a local pastor, a tight-knit rural community, and everyone, the four guests at the at the lunch are served mushrooms, and three of those people are now dead, whereas the hosts who were there are not were not injured at all and are fine. But everyone who was a guest ate what appear to be death cat mushrooms, and three of them are dead. And it's just, it's gripped Australia. It is very mysterious. I suggest you read the story in the Washington Post. It is, uh, it's gruesome. It is gruesome. And also, it made me realize, because I was reading the story, people are getting poisoned by death cat mushrooms all the time. It causes all kinds of terrible distress all kind of liver toxicity that's horrible and lifelong neurological damage so don't eat any mushrooms that would be my major advice is do not eat any mushrooms at oh, all come on i love mushrooms you can't just like x out all the mushrooms i'm kidding of course you should eat mushrooms but don't eat death cat mushrooms that would be number, my number one advice i'm not sure what they look like they must look like something else i don't think people eat death cap mushrooms on purpose um anyway check out that story in the washington post listeners you uh have sent us lots of nice chatters please keep them coming there's a little bit of a summer lull we didn't get that many this week um but please keep your excellent ideas coming email them to us at gabfest at slate.com something that you're thinking about talking about we'd love to hear from you about it and this week's uh listener chatter comes from rob parsons in sitka alaska i just wanted to say sitka alaska Hello, GabFest. My name is Rob Parsons from Sitka, Alaska, and my chatter is for anybody down south who may be suffering from the heat needing a short refreshing story from Alaska. Encounters is a radio show by the late cultural anthropologist and author Richard Nelson, who tells stories of nature that will make you feel like you are with him. His knowledge of Alaska native culture is only matched by his knowledge of Alaska flora and fauna. The real bonus for GabFest listeners is Richard Nelson's voice, which I can only describe as imagining if John Dickerson and David Attenborough had a baby. Thank you. That's our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Ops. And Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio for Slate. Please email chatter to us at gabfest at slate.com or follow us on Twitter at at slategabfest where we still have a nominal presence despite the hellscape that is that platform. For Emily Bazelon and the ever-delightful Juliet Kayam, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. The brawl in Montgomery, wow, has really gripped the attention of the nation, or some of the nation. So if you didn't see it, there was a, a an event boat, a kind of party boat, a, not, not exactly a party boat, but a party, think of it as a party boat, trying to dock at the dock in Montgomery. And the dock where the party boat parks was blocked by a small boat when the captain of the the boat, the big boat, 
asked the small boat's owners to move. And I would note that the captain or the co-captain is identified as black and the small boat owner and passengers are all white. The white boat passengers attacked this captain. And soon it exploded into a racialized brawl with black passengers and other black people hitting and assaulting the white perpetrators who had completely instigated the attack. And this all ended ultimately when police finally intervened and three of the white instigators have been charged. I'm not sure if anybody else has been charged yet, but what did you guys make of the, the response to this? There's almost, there was almost a celebratory response to the, the brawl, to the comeuppance that these assholes, these brutes, these white, white guys who started it all got their comeuppance. I mean, I think part of what's going on with this story is that it's summer and there's something very like summer heat, summer boredom simmering underneath the surface here. Like we're all just sort of gawking at this video because we need something to do. Um, And it's also just very, you know, human and kind of like unvarnished in the way that these viral videos tend to be. And you can read so many different things into it. Um, I mean, the, the white instigators are being so clearly assholic. They're just like being really disrespectful. And then they're the ones who start the violence. And so I think there's, that is why like the comeuppance part of it has um, been a strong part of this response. And also, at least the way I watched these videos, I watched that whole part of them antagonizing this, um, mostly this black city employee who was like trying to get them to just follow the rules. Then there's a second part, which is like the racialized, you know, kind of mass brawl you're talking about, David. And that one, in some ways, well, I don't know what's more disturbing, but in that one, you start just seeing total mayhem and like, you know, the violence is going in all directions. And there's like this, you know, older looking woman getting um, hit over the head with a folding chair and it just starts to feel out of control. And that's like, at least to me, the less righteous, more discomforting part of the videos. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I, I, I've watched the video a bunch of times. The reaction to it, I like just because I, you know, w- we're a clever people. I mean, there's the sort of uh, uh, things that are coming out in response, including uh, there's a there's a fold up chair uh, that was used, and then uh, I guess some of the people who had been involved with it went back and held the chair up as if it were you know some sort of trophy, and then that chair is showing up in all sorts of places, including uh, on the MLK, uh, the Martin Luther King statue. People have superimposed that chair on a picture of that statue. And so, I mean, people are are having fun with it, but the viewing of it, I found really uncomfortable um, uh, uh, when you take the racial issue into account. We should say that the prosecutors are not alleging that this was racial. It's just a bunch of assholery, as Emily would say, uh, that escalated. But it's it's hard not to view it. And then when you hear the background narratives of people who are taking pictures of it, there's clearly a sense that of some some racial tinging. I think I, I think it's safe to say. Uh, but I have to say the privilege that these white guys felt they had uh, was uh, so prevalent in in how they were behaving that I, you know, anyone who who is sick of 
hearing about how people like, you know, who live on the East Coast, you know, have to understand real America because we're so privileged. I, I sort of like, yeah, you know what? There's groups of people who view themselves as privileged and that they can just, you know, beat the crap out of a city employee. And I kind of liked uh, uh, going after uh, at least, you know, taking on that sense of privilege that you could use violence and, and being a jerk as a way to get what you want, which I think is very prevalent uh, in this country as well. I mean, and in the in the David uh, uh, tradition of ending, you know, maybe slightly depressed. Uh, this is Alabama, and I didn't see a single gun. And I was like, literally, as I'm watching it, I was like, I can't, you know, that this did not escalate. Thank God, you know, could have been worse. That is a really good point. I I have two notes to make. One is Charles uh, Blow, the New York Times columnist, got into the explicitly the racial aspects of it that this is a city this is a city where white violence against black people uh and white mob violence against black people was essentially legal until very recently it was legal for most of the city's history and most of this country's history and in most of this country it's been legal in most of this country and so there the black violence as a response to white violence was something that's been impossible for most of this country's history in most places. And so there is, I think some people feel a sense of uh, celebration about that or some sense of relief or like, well, you know, uh, de- legitimate deserved, uh, deserved retribution. Um, but it's very depressing. I, the, but the thing that I struck that struck me is, is that this is a parking dispute. This is actually a parking dispute. And it's so much of American life is like parking disputes. Parking parking is a place where things go wrong all the time. And people have a, such a sense of entitlement about parking, like as though it's that it is real estate that they own and possess. Um, and it it is a it is a, it's a flashpoint all the time. And we just saw it, you know, this is just a, a parking dispute that happens to be on water. Everything is parking. That's my view. I also liked how, I mean, Charles Blow was talking about the history you were alluding to, David, but also just how many times in history Black people have been unable to come to each other's defense. Um, You know, he went back to slavery discussing that, but also, you know, it's been true much more recently, too. And he was talking about the civil disobedience and nonviolence of um, the civil rights movement. You know, obviously, that was a strength and it was succeeded, but he pointed out that it adds to this pile of images we have of um, black people being victimized and not being able to help each other. And he brought it up to date with, um, you know, the death of George Floyd. Um, And I think there is that context for this, right? Like he's being really careful not to excuse violence. And I think that's important because that's why the second part of the brawl has a more morally ambiguous feeling to it. But I think it is totally fair to bring up that context and like think about people's reactions in light of all that history. Yeah, I would not have so quickly. I mean, I don't know who the prosecutor is, if he's elected, I don't know, but I would not have so quickly put aside that this is not a civil rights case. I mean, we, you know, who knows what was said, who knows what we're going to discover, but to, to put a brawl like that in the middle of, of Alabama and, uh, and, 
uh, and, and given the sides to say, well, this had nothing to do with race is sort of ignoring a couple hundred centuries of history. Buy Slate Plus 